Are you interested in leadership? Welcome to the Menzies Leadership Podcast. Tune in for insights and observations about leadership, the challenges and blind spots, attributes and values that you need to lead now and in the future. I'm Liz Gillies, Menzies Foundation CEO and your host today. Let's get started. Uh, it gives me absolute pleasure and delight to introduce you to our speaker, our guest speaker for the Menzies Leadership Forum today, Kai. Kai um, and the Menzies Foundation, through his outstanding work in Regen Melbourne, have just confirmed a really exciting new collaboration and partnership um, in partnership with Regen Melbourne, the Coalition for Everyone and Australia Leadership Index at Swinburne University called Participatory Melbourne. And so many of the elements of the work of the foundation around leadership, the greater good, our collective responsibility to each other, new ways of thinking and working and being in the world, I think Kai coalesce in this project in many respects. And I'm really thrilled to be able to have a chat with you this morning to unpack Regen Melbourne and the role that Participatory Melbourne will play in it and then actually really get to know you a little bit better in terms of your own leadership journey. Because I, as an observer, in looking in, I can see how instrumental you have been and the leadership attributes and qualities that you have uh, have been in shaping and positioning the work. So let's start. For those um, who don't know much about Regen Melbourne uh, or the genesis of it, tell us, Kai, how what Regen Melbourne is, how it came about and where you find yourself today. Uh, thanks for having me, Liz, and that's a very generous and kind introduction. Um, absolute pleasure to be part of this. It's hard to tell, I find it really difficult to tell stories like this, um, although it's really important, origin stories are critical, because they can sound pretty linear and pretty smooth and pretty uh, strategic. Uh, and they can often make a kind of um, a founder or a CEO or a leader look a little bit more coherent than perhaps they are. Uh, so I just want to use that as a disclaimer at the outset before I dive into this story, because it's been a messy and non-linear journey. Uh, and perhaps the way I describe it might feel might feel a little bit more um, strategic than that. So that's my disclaimer. But if I rewind uh, three years to the end of 2019, uh, those of us living in Melbourne, as we rolled into Christmas that year, started to see reports of the fires that we then became known as the Black Summer up and down the east coast of Australia. And initially, I suspect many of us uh, felt like it was sort of like many other summers, you know, really unbelievable footage coming out of places that were relatively far away, uh, but not super unusual. And then, of course, by the time New Year's Eve came around and the footage out of places like Malakuta and others um, emerged, it was, it was, you know, uh, it, was, it felt almost apocalyptic um, what we were seeing. Then something quite unusual happened that was actually quite different to other events that we'd experienced. So not only the scale of the fires were obviously um, massive, but also smoke started to settle in on Melbourne and on Sydney and just sat on the city. And this was a kind of an interesting phenomenon, not because, uh, not because it should be super surprising when there are mega fires not super far from the city and and the winds were blowing in such a way from Gippsland that meant that you know it sat across Melbourne for a week, but it was sort of a visceral experience of what I think many of us had had imagined as the climate emergency and how it might manifest in cities. But it was here now, and so we had a week where we were genuinely concerned for the health of, for example, asthmatic kids and vulnerable people, and we were wearing masks in the city, you know, months before the COVID lockdowns emerged. And it was a genuine moment, I think, in Melbourne. And our, our experience, my experience of it, was that it really shook the foundations of the city. It was a visceral experience of climate and climate catastrophe. So that was sort of part one of the origin story. There was this moment that really um, shook the city from a climate perspective. And then if you fast forward um, a, few, a few months, of course, we had the emergence of the COVID pandemic and the response to it, which, of course, in Melbourne was profound lockdown. So we had the first lockdown, which was relatively short. And then when the second lockdown started, it quickly became apparent that this was going to be long and it's going to be a prolonged experience, a serious disruption. And what we witnessed there was uh, a number of um, a number of things, of course. And one of the most profound ones was that this wasn't an equal experience for people. A bunch of social um, foundations that we perhaps assumed were there in the city weren't very strong. So people suffered under the lockdown conditions differently depending on where they lived, 
depending on socioeconomic background, depending on cultural background, there was a whole bunch of things playing out on the front page of the newspapers that perhaps up until that point, of course they were there, but they were perhaps below the surface for many people. And once again, I think the foundations of the city were, were shaken, of course, by the lockdowns, but also by how we started to see the patterns in our city of inequality, of, um, of how many of these conditions were connected to each other. So public health was linked to gender, was linked to wealth inequality, was linked to all these things. The system became a little bit more apparent, a little bit more visual to everybody. And these twin experiences, I think, were really interesting um, moments for, for the city and were the driving force for a number of organizations to start coming together in July, August, September of 2020 to explore what these moments meant for the city. And if we we're going to go through such profound disruptions and profound hardship, was there the possibility that it could also be the unlocking of new pathways for the city towards something that was profoundly different and perhaps more sustainable and towards regeneration? So that was the kind of origin context. And I think it's really important to name that context because it was such a, it was the fuel that really drove the emergence of what then became known as Regen Melbourne. So at that point, there was sort of five or six organizations playing together. It was the city of Melbourne. It was a coalition of everyone, the Circular Economy Victoria, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, and the organization that I was working for, which was Small Giants Academy. And we got together to say, well, maybe we could use a framework like Donut Economics, which some of the listeners would know, to sort of hold just, just explain what Donut yeah. Economics is. So, so Donut Economics is a is a relatively simple framework um, with a whole bunch of complexity underneath it that an economist called Kate Rayworth um, came up with about ten years ago now, and she was an economist working at Oxfam, uh, working in microfinance and a whole bunch of areas, and basically started to realise that so many, so much of her time was taken up unpicking the assumptions that sit under the discipline of economics. Um, things like we're all rational men as actors, things like the system will redistribute and um, regenerate itself based on growth, just fundamental principles that actually weren't real in the real world and were causing a huge amount of harm. So she wrote this book, which was um, framed around this idea of, um, of a donut. And I'll quickly explain that. So it's like a cinnamon donut, you know, the one with the hole in the middle. And basically she said that the goal of our economic system, the goal of our social and, and political leadership shouldn't be growth at all costs. It should be getting into what she described as the safe and just space of the donut. And that space is made up of a social foundation, which is the inner ring of the donut, which is basically borrowed from the sustainable development goals. So this framework that all countries around the world have agreed to, they become the kind of social foundation for, for our economy and the goal of our economic system. But just reaching that, so bringing everybody above that social foundation isn't enough if we are also operating outside the realms of the planetary boundaries. And so she said, well, you need another layer. So she put another layer on the outside, which forms that donut shape. And the other layer is the, um, the planetary boundaries, which is taken from the planetary boundaries work out of the Stockholm Resilience Center. So she kind of borrowed a model for the planetary boundaries. She borrowed a model for the social foundations and she put it together as a shape. And that safe and just space is basically the the orientation that we should all have as leaders in our society, that's the goal we're working towards. And so don't... What, is that, what does that, in car in practice, what does that actually mean? So what is that, like what this notion of regeneration sits very much at the heart of that. Talk to me about, give people an anchor. What's regeneration mean in the context of the type of future that we need in order to thrive? So, I mean, at Regen Melbourne, we talk about our goal is creating a thriving city within planetary boundaries. That's the kind of um, very, very simple framing that we talk about when we think about a regenerative Melbourne. Um, and that speaks to that donut idea, right? How do we bring people above that social foundation to live thriving lives when it comes to access to water and health and education and political voice and all of the elements of a social foundation? But we have to do that within the planetary boundaries that we have. So that's kind of in very simple terms what the mission of Regen Melbourne is to bring our city into that safe and just space. And then there's, of course, a whole other conversation around regeneration and the very nature of regeneration itself. And again, to try and boil it down to its simplest form, it's centering life and flourishing life in all forms um, on this planet. And of course, that's human beings. It's us but it's also the natural ecosystems that we depend on. It's also the, um, the life that is all around us in, in, our, in our ecology. Um, and 
sort of keeping that as the North star in all of the work that we do is, is when you ask, you know, what is regeneration, that's a really, really key aspect of the work. And, and that implies for me, which I find the most interesting, and I want to get a tangible sense of what you're actually doing around that, but it implies this sense of, of our collective responsibility to each other and the trade-offs that sit in that space in order to um, cultivate a deeper understanding of the greater good. Just philosophically, before we get into actually what you're doing, just explain to me why that's that premise, which to be honest lies at the heart of the Menzies Foundation's work, a deeper exploration and understanding of the greater good and a sense of our relationship to each other, to planet and to other things that creates the context in which we can thrive. Just it, it, just unpack that a little for in terms of how that sits at the heart of what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's a, such a it's a fundamental right. Like, what is the greater good or the common good or the the good society that we're working towards? Um, and you know, there's a kind of uh, there's a technical answer, which is the donut. Like, it's you can measure these things. You can measure our access to health or access to um, to gender equality or political voice or staying within the climate planetary boundary or chemical pollution. Like you can see there's a technical answer, which is not a good answer to the philosophical question, but there is a technical answer. And that's really important to note. Um, at a philosophical level, it came up in our research that we then embarked on as a bunch of organizations at the end of 2020, which is you can define these boundaries in a technical sense. Like we can talk about what it means in Melbourne and come up with beautiful metrics. And, and that is a part of what we do at Regen Melbourne. But if we don't look at what the role of reconnecting to each other and healing country, reconnecting to country, then it doesn't matter what your technical boundaries are. You're never going to reach them. So you have to look, we have to look at as a society at the relational first relationship to each other and then relationship to place, to country. Um, otherwise we're not going to reach any of those, of those technical answers. And yet Kai, and yet Kai, I'm recently been looking at some of this data. Um, the Edelman Barometer, the Australian Leadership Index and Sam Wilson's great work out of Swinburne University all say that in fact, the world is riven by polarization, that things that divide us are more pertinent, more real, more, more strongly felt, that society is more adversarial, that this idea of our collective responsibility, and, and this is born about because people are overwhelmed by concerns about economic context they live in, about climate change, they're concerned about, um, you know, a whole uh, the pace of change. They've lost distrust in media and confidence in the information that's been fed to them. People are increasingly working in echo in echo chambers that reflect their own view of the world. So, and and advocacy and holding strong to positions has become an increasing element, I think of how we connect with each other. Yeah. And yet what you're suggesting or what Regen Melbourne is really looking at is the point beyond that. So how do you reconcile the philosophical imperative of what you're talking about with the reality of how the world's working? Yeah, I, I feel like it, the way I personally hold those tensions and, and, and scale of the challenge is... Um, as a historian, so I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an engineer by background, but I also studied history and did a master's of economic history, which I think allows for a little bit of zooming in and out, depending on um, the moment. And the zooming out is really important um, in the context of what you're talking about, because the trends that are at play in a really significant way right now around polarization, technology, um, uh, the fundamentals of our economic system, competition, over collaboration, et cetera, they're, they're sort of short-term manifestations of long-term trends. And I feel like um, we can debate, uh, you know, economic systems and ideologies a lot, but I would, I think you'd struggle to find anybody now who doesn't agree that the phase of kind of economic history that we've been in, neoliberal economics, is coming to an end, that it's in transition right now. It doesn't mean that we know where it's going. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to go somewhere better. But the last phase of 50 years that has really prioritized individualization over the collective in every sense, um, specialization over the general, you know, a competition over the collective, all those sorts of things, that's in transition now. 
And I think if we zoom out, we can see that um, that manifests as ideologically at a political level at being a bit confused. Like you find like conservatives wanting to intervene in the market and social Democrats saying we should. So it's a bit confused at that level, which I think is just an indication that the ideology is coming to an end and there's sort of a transition on. And I think what, so what I guess what I'm saying is that all of those things are true. And yet when we find ourselves in times of crisis, coming back to the origin story of Region Melbourne, and we look at the way the communities organized the back of those fires up and down the East Coast and other, you know, and flood affected communities more recently, and the work that you've done um, on community resilience bears this out, right? Actually at the heart, when, when push comes to shove, when pressure is high, we are not what our economic system describes it. We're not polarized. We're not, um, you know, competitive. We are innately collaborative, altruistic, social beings. And somehow the work that we're all doing together has to tap into that essence and say, well, how, do, how does that become the foundational aspects of the system that we were organized on beyond just immediately post-crisis? And then how do all the enabling environments, the political, the legal, the technical, the organizational design, how does that all feed into those or build from those ideas of who we are, not just the competitive side of who we are? Because of course we're competitive as well. Like that's part of who we are, but it's not everything. It's not all of what we are. So I think our jobs is also just to tap into some of what we know is true when push comes to shove, not just what we've been told is true over the last 50 years of economic history. Before we get into participatory Melbourne, talk to me a little bit about how you structured Regen. What are you actually doing in exploring this terrain? Because it's lofty and ambitious and imperative, let me say, but lofty and ambitious. How have you broken it down? What steps are you taking? Give people a sense of what you're doing on the ground. Yeah, beautiful. So we released this big report after this community research process that we went through at the end of 2020, which was, as I said, born out of that period which was that report was called Towards a Regenerative Melbourne. And it had a collective vision for what a regenerative Melbourne looks like. It had a beautiful version of the donut, the donut economics model for Melbourne. And it had a roadmap of activations. And we came out of that process uh, with about 50 organizations and 500 people being involved. And we launched into a two-year pilot to work out how this new alliance could be useful to the city. How could it serve the place? And that's the period that we're just coming out of now. So we spent that 12 months doing a whole bunch of, or two years doing a whole bunch of activations. We did community engagement work. We did workshops. We ran project incubators. We engaged a whole bunch of research institutions to work out how does research underpin the work that we do as an alliance. And where we landed was actually quite a simple idea. So Regen Melbourne is a platform for ambitious collaboration in service of the city. We discovered in that research process and in that engagement process that there's so much fantastic work already happening in Melbourne, unbelievable work at a community scale um, within sectors and silos. But the gap that we found was that there wasn't a space or a platform or a piece of social infrastructure that could host the type of really ambitious projects that our city desperately needs. So Region Melbourne is that platform. So we host these big projects, one of which is Participatory Melbourne, which have really significant ambitions about transforming the city. And the funny thing about those ambitions is that they're also really intuitive. They're playful, they're joyful, they're not super strange. Things like making the river, the Yarra River, the Birrarung swimmable again, on the one hand is unbelievably ambitious. On the other hand, should feel really obvious and intuitive. You know, um, re reconnecting to our sense of agency and trust and participation as a city is unbelievably obvious as something we should do, but really complex and ambitious. And other work that we're doing around street homelessness, around food systems, around, these are really, really bold goals. But when you ask a single act to say, I want to do these things, it's really hard because they're operating within the constraints of the current system. And single actors simply don't solve systems problems. But together as an alliance, and now an alliance of 150 plus organizations, we're creating a space for all of our members to be more ambitious in their goals. And then we act together towards those goals. Uh, one of those, which I'm um, quite grateful and so excited about because it's the culmination of a couple of years of the foundation's work is this focus on participatory Melbourne and this really deep dive into the levers, the conditions, the factors that contribute to a re-sense of, con a different sense of connectedness to a trust and faith in community, to unlocking people's ambition and 
sense of possibility of contributing to the greater good. Just spend a few minutes about why this project fits into the broader sweep of what you're doing and your ambitions for the project. Yeah, so it's 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 such it is incredibly exciting, and and one of the wonderful things about um, the way that our portfolio of projects is emerging is, of course, they they intersect with each other. So on the one hand, they're really sort of separate, beautiful, um, distinct pieces of work, like making the river swimmable or ending food waste or um, uh, or looking at um, regenerative streets, for example. They're kind of separate projects, separate initiatives, and and our the way that our system currently works. We need to be simple about that. So people need to be able to access that work in a really direct way. So that serves a purpose. And of course, like they intersect with each other in a wickedly beautiful way in order to get to that safe and just space of the Melbourne donut that we spoke about earlier. And participatory Melbourne is such a good example of that. On the one hand, it's a really distinct area, like thinking about how do we increase agency and trust and a sense of active participation in Melbourne's future. Um, that's like a beautiful projects that we can define and you and I can talk about, but in the context of that higher ambition, it fundamentally underpins the regeneration of our city, full stop. Like if we don't get this piece right, if we can't get a city to the point where we have a sense of active citizenry, not just in response to things that we don't like, but also in response to things that we want to create together, then we don't, we don't get to our vision at Regen Melbourne. So it's a fundamental kind of at the core um, of, of what we're all about. That's it's, that's why it's so exciting. That's my preamble, Liz. Um, I, I'm, I'm really excited to get going with this. Um, and then secondly, I just wanted to say that I, I think it's also about the, um, the the experimental nature of it that, that excites me. So none of the projects that we're doing at Regen Melbourne, these ambitious pathways to the safe and just space, none of them have a blueprint. There's no like step one to 10 on how to make the Yarra River, the Birrarung swimmable again. It's a wickedly complex problem, um, which is why we want to embark on them as an alliance, as a collective of organizations. And the same goes for these questions about agency and trust and collaboration and participation. Uh, there's no there's no blueprint for that. And no single organization can really grapple with it on their own. Great research exists, great examples, great case studies that organizations are doing. But the beauty of this project, I think, is building a bit of a web or a weaving exercise between all of those the good examples, the good research, the good case studies, seeing Melbourne as a, as a system in and of itself in this space, and then working out where the gaps are, where the opportunities are to extend the ambition of those existing actors so that we can really make inroads um, in this question of participation in Melbourne. So, uh, Kai, you're alluding to lots of themes that are absolutely relevant in the work of the Menzies Foundation, moving from leader to leadership, pivoting yeah. from the leader to this notion of a systems lens on leader on leadership and the conditions that cultivate people to work in deeper and more resonant ways to achieve ambitious goals that will create the greater good and thriving community. One of the really key areas of focus that the foundation finds across the dimensions of its leadership work is this idea of collaborative capacity, deepening collaborative capacity. And yet, Kai, easy to say, so difficult in the trenches to necessarily cultivate. Talk to me, it, that lies very much at the heart of, I think, the way you talk about Regen Melbourne. I think one of the things that's most exciting about Regen Melbourne and the amazing people that you have working with you in that space is it's very much a systems orientation on leadership. It's really mm. moved away from the leader having the answer to this generous generation in collaboration, in mess, in uncertainty, in ambiguity to find ways to unlock or to use those spaces to create space for innovation and new ways of thinking and working. I'd love some, I don't want to make this sound too pie in the sky because I know in my everyday work the incredible challenge of working in deep collaborative capacity. Can you just reflect on how, to what extent, that sense of collaboration lies at the heart of the model and what you've learned in the journey. Because Kai, I breathe here, it can't all be glory stories. <laughs> it really can't. <laughs> um, I guess so. So it's such a, it's such a good question, and and I feel like it 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 is the question at the heart of heart of Regen Melbourne, and 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 it is an experiment. So you know we can talk about it in in kind of conceptual terms and it can sound like these are really landed ideas they're not and i think that's that's the first thing i wanted to say 
the other thing I think is we're coming to a point now in the kind of evolution of um, systems change thinking and collaboration thinking where I think a lot of people are realizing that uh, the the conceptual side of what is systems change, which which we can talk about, and, and what is the nature of collaboration, um, is very different in conceptual terms to where to where the current system sits. So in other words, what I mean is we can talk about the art and science of collaboration, and we can talk about the nature of systemic change, but once you actually hit the ground in the current system, the current state, it's unbelievably difficult to execute, largely because it doesn't matter if you're in government or if you're in the business sector or if you're in the nonprofit sector. We have constraints in these areas of the economy that make it fundamentally hard. So in the, in the, in the government sector, for example, we have short-term electoral cycles, which means that conversations about systems change, which are fundamentally long-term, or collaboration is fundamentally difficult in a short-term competitive electoral cycle. So government, to some extent, is compromised in this conversation. But it's no different in business, of course, because the current economic paradigm in business is about short-term profit cycles which are also antithetical to the idea of collaboration and the idea of transformative systems change. And it's no different in the nonprofit sector because you've got a scarcity mindset and a particular philanthropic model, which is based around problem solving, not systems change, and, and specific actors solving specific problems, not collaboration. So it doesn't really matter where you are in the economic system. The idea of collaboration, the idea of systems change doesn't land easily. doesn't mean it's not possible but it doesn't land easily. And I think it's worth naming because it's not a problem that's specific just to government or just to business or just to the nonprofit sector, which is why from a region Melbourne perspective, we believe it's important to have an actor or a platform that is specifically geared towards the art and science of collaboration that sits across those economic actors, across government, across business, across the nonprofit or the common sector. We need a space that creates, that's actually built for the type of collaboration in the systems work that cuts across all those challenges that we have. And that's wickedly complex, and I'm not suggesting it's easy work. It's really hard, but it goes beyond just the idea that we should encourage collaboration and then hope that organizations will find the space to do it, for example. How have you been instrumental in that space? If you reflect on the last few years, I mean, my reflection in brokering similar sorts of platforms is you know, I've got as many great stories as not such great stories. It's a huge, so tell me how, what have you, as you reflect on the last three years, what are some of the things that you've become aware of that you require in order to facilitate and build or deepen collaborative capacity? So the thing that binds this together, the whole of the experiment that we're running together is connection to place. So it is about the fact that this is born of and um, a particularly uh, pressurized moment in a particular place uh, at a particular time. And so the the sort of mandate that's been built around Regen Melbourne to do this type of work, which I think is like one of the critical ingredients of collaboration is kind of why, what gives you the right to host this type of work um, comes out of that period um, and out of that moment and is connected to place. Place binds this together. So I think that's a that's, that's a really, really important aspect of it. And then it's about unpicking what we actually mean by collaboration. So it's not just saying the word, it's really un- unpicking it. So we talk about a few different aspects of it. One is strategic convening. So how do you bring together the right actors at the right time with the right type of facilitation to take the next step forward in a collaboration? So that's sort of, there's an art in that, you know, who's in the room, when are they in the room? How do you pr- brief people into those conversations? How do you brief people out of those conversations? How do you hold that space? That's a beautiful art that I think we're very good at. How do you manage the kind of ongoing communication between actors, between those people? So it's not just through us, it's sort of facilitating a distributed communication process. How do you work on um, innovation, which is the word is, is burnt, but like, let's use the word just in this context, but not in an individual sense, but in a collective sense. So how do you run forums and processes that allow for that kind of um, innovation to occur between actors? And then the, the last one, um, and listeners might identify where some of these ideas have come from, which I'll get to in a minute, is collective measurement. So how do you look at sort of measuring collective progress, not individual actor progress? And we do that at Region Melbourne by genuinely looking at how do we use the Melbourne donut, this North Star, as a measure of collective progress. And then we're going to be we're working on over the next few years, but how does that manifest in each one of these pathways, each one of these projects? And Listeners would understand that many of these ideas about the art of collaboration come from collective impact methodologies, which are well-worn in, in 
um, non-profit circles and particularly over the last little while. But we just add a couple more ingredients that I think are really critical for Rita Region Melbourne. One is what we talk about as funding architecture. So what is the flow of capital around these collaborations? And how do we make sure that the capital flow is equally as systemic as the intentions of the collaboration? Because right, often- I can interrupt you for one second yeah. there because Kai, it's the container within which these types of platforms can evolve that's fundamental. And yet there's, it's challenging to get people to appreciate how fundamentally important the scaffolding of the infrastructure is and how that needs to be resourced. Yeah. Because hopefully others will be open or to thinking about this in ways as a result of what you're talking about. Just explain that a little bit more. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and, and that has been the real challenge for this type of work for a long time. And we were lucky enough with the Region Melbourne timing and, and where it came from that I was able to go to a number of um, really uh, catalytic philanthropists and foundations in Melbourne at the end of 2021 when this research came out and say to them that I'm not sure quite what's here, but there is an energy here that taps into the themes that you've been talking about for a long time around collaboration and systems change. Can we just see if we invest in a piece of infrastructure, what happens to the ecosystem? That was the last two years of exploration, right? And luckily we've managed, you know, it was 12 um, amazing funding partners in that funding circle who allowed us to basically reorganize this system, um, seed a bunch of these ideas and watch them grow through the service in new ways. And that's our portfolio of projects now. And now we're able to go back to, um, you know, philanthropy across Melbourne and say, we had this catalytic investment that led to, which was just in the infrastructure, which has led to these cool projects. So hopefully we can demonstrate that the infrastructure investment does lead to different sort of project level outcomes, but those projects wouldn't have existed had we not invested in the infrastructure. Um, so that's, that's the kind of journey that we've been on. And it's been very difficult. There was a great report that came out um, a couple of years ago on the focus on systems change and collaboration in philanthropic reports in Australia and the lack of actual investment in those areas. So there's a gap, like an expectations gap. Um, which I think, was that your work around philanthropy? I think uh, it was. It, uh, some of it, I contributed to that conversation. It's a cause close to my heart. I think that taps into that theme, right? That, that theme. How do we talk about it as dark matter? Like what's the dark matter that sits between actors and systems? And how do we activate that in service of transformation rather than in service to the status quo? So one of the key things that the founda- the Menzies Foundation is seeing in this is in non-linear ways of thinking and working, in a systems perspective, as I said, in not necessarily knowing what the blueprint is, how you get from A to B, we are increasingly focused on this anchor of purpose, mm. of how who you are and what you believe, how deeply you understand and live the values and principles that define you as an individual gives you the ballast, the foundation to work in a systems leadership model where the unknown is as profound as what is in immediately in front of you. And I just, I could talk to you all day, Kai, to be honest, but I'm really interested in anchoring this part of the conversation in you um, and not learning a little bit more about you and unpacking the extent to which purpose and how you think about yourself in these contexts supports you in the work that you do. So can we just take five minutes to just talk, tell us a little bit about your leadership journey, Kai, and how you got to the where you are today the the way that you have built up this capability to work, as I said, with this systems lens. How did it all start, right? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to calibrate that question. See how many generations back we need to go. Uh, but I, you know, I'm an engineer by training. I, I studied civil engineering and and really didn't like it. Um, so I coupled that with an arts degree, uh, majoring in history, and uh, that probably was the start. I mean. It's a good example of my personality type, I guess, that, that I couldn't deal with just staying in one lane. Uh, and, you know, I remember it, um, at uni, you know, going to a lecture on, on bolts in the old engineering building and the structural nature of bolts and then walking across campus and doing comparative genocide studies in the afternoon and, and finding that to be like, you know, the, the thing that actually fueled my, my passion. And, and I reconciled, I guess, some of that, um, happy tension and, and also my social justice upbringing by working with Engineers Without Borders as it was getting going in Australia. So that was my way of sort of bringing the social justice to this really conservative education and, and, and reconciling the two. 
and spent most of my time in my early 20s uh, working with Engineers Without Borders, initially as a volunteer and as a staff and board member as that got going. Um, so that was my first 10 years, unbelievable experience in navigating community development work and how technical um, thinking and, and, and particularly systems thinking, which I think is embedded in engineering in many ways, and how that plays out in non-technical arenas at the relational level with community, with government, with universities, with with um, the corporate engineering sector. How do you kind of create a sense of humanitarianism in that dynamic is, is was our real main challenge. Uh, and I think we did some really wonderful work and Engineers Without Borders continues to be a powerful heartbeat at the center of the engineering sector in this country. Uh, I then sort of sidestepped into social entrepreneurship and, and impact investment. I worked for a family office called Small Giants, uh, which was one of the earliest pioneers of impact investment in Australia. Basically, how do you create an entire portfolio of um, assets uh, and investments and partnerships that are entirely linked to purpose to your question? You know, how do you not distinguish between the commercial and the philanthropic, but you ground all of it in purpose? Um, so we sort of, we were a pioneer in that space for, for the last 15 years and, and has been, you know, my role there has been both at a portfolio level, but also at an organizational level but always dancing across organizational types. So from the nonprofit partners that we had to the social enterprise partners that we had to the commercial investment partners that we had and spending time in those different domains. And I guess that's probably where I get my chameleonic personality, Liz, um, operating in different spaces quite comfortably uh, and and loving it, you know, just getting a lot of energy from from expo exposure to lots of different um, problems and, and and approaches and the way that you know, one organization's purpose does intrinsically link to another one, even if perhaps they don't see it um, at their at sort of the day-to-day -day level. And and my job at sort of at the portfolio level of small giants was doing a lot of that weaving. Like, how do we bring those organizations together in service to something even more ambitious? When uh, a year before the pandemic, I took my family, my young family back to Sweden, where my father was from and, and um, where I have deep, deep connections to. And, and I did a master's of economic history, um, which was my way of a, having a break from the work, having a real sabbatical and connecting to family and culture and language and all the beautiful things, but also um, al allowing me to zoom out the way we just did in the conversation we had around, you know, what does the moment currently mean in the context of the many transitions that we've been through in the past and, and how distinct is this moment and how much can we learn from, from our historical transitions? Uh, so that was sort of the pre-pandemic blissful time in Europe, pre-pandemic when we were still able to do that sort of thing. Um, and then when I returned, obviously the pandemic hit and the Regen Melbourne story really started. But I guess that I feel a little bit like, um, without creating too linear a story, those experiences have led to the point where um, I've got this eclectic background of, of different things, but it sort of suits the role that we're in now at Regen Melbourne as a strategic convener of actors and and speaks to, I guess there's a, it's almost like a Venn diagram in my mind between um, systems change and the idea of transition collaboration as the sort of process and then place as the context. So it's sort of systems change, collaboration and place. And I think Regen Melbourne sits at the heart of that Venn diagram. And, and for some reason, my eclectic bunch of experiences have prepared me for this, for this, uh, for this role that we're in now. Um, and also I just wanted to say that th there's been a, a wonderful gravitational pull at Regen Melbourne for a whole bunch of really extraordinary human beings to, to co-develop this with me and others. Um, that I'm so grateful for the little team that I'm, you know, we've got at Regen Melbourne now is just a bunch of absolute legends, um, including Omar Ibrahim, who's leading the participatory Melbourne work with uh, Willow and, and Sam and, and yourself. Um, so I'm finding so much energy from the type of humans that are emerging um, to also play at that intersection of that Venn diagram. So I, I think one of the, I think I'm going to determine, I'm going to ask you questions about you now, because I want people to get inside. I think the thing that's about purpose that I think, I think purpose is very galvanizing. I think purpose is very, it's a place where you can find a deep well of motivation. But I also think it's not, it's, it's, it can be static versus dynamic. And I think that purpose, I was reading something the other day that talked about purpose being like a bit like happiness, that it's a journey to purpose. Do you know what I mean? It's not something yeah, that, I like you, that. that you have a motherhood statement about, which I think so often purpose becomes that's sort of a vague statement about your essential goodness yep. and some less, even more flimsy articulation of the values that guide you in, in achieving that goodness. But I think, I think purpose is actually a much grittier, dirtier notion than that. I think 
you know, I, in my own, in my own work, for example, Kai, you know, your purpose can be overwhelmed by the day-to-day dross of your life or the challenges that you're dealing with. You can lose perspective on the greater good. You can behave in a way that doesn't necessarily accord with your purpose for a whole range of different reasons. Can It's a lot to ask you, I know, sort of out of the blue, but do you see your purpose as dying? How's your purpose evolved? Like, how do you cultivate your purpose, Kai? Yeah. What things do you do to make it central to who you are and how you work? It's a fantastic framing, Liz, and I feel uh, using quite different language. I think I've I've landed somewhere quite similar, uh, where you know I feel I feel like the value some of the values that I hold have been really strong throughout my life. Um, I think particularly back to the way that you know my, some of my formative memories were, um, you know, getting taken out of primary school to protest the Grand Prix being dropped in Albert Park, for example, and hundreds of old growth trees being chopped down. And, and protesting actively with a sense of um, family and community and um, and connection to the natural world. And so a lot of those values, I think, are fundamentally part of who I am. And, and, and that includes, you know, the Scandinavian heritage and the sense of the collective good and the, the role of, you know, the, the, um, of the state and how we are together as a society. And, and so a lot of that, I think, is, is constant. I think that w- what you're teasing out, I think, is this sense of how do our, how does our sense of purpose, how do our ideals meet the system as it is today all around us? Uh, and that I think is something that many people grapple with. And if it's not grappled with well, can lead to quite degenerative outcomes at an individual level, because it's very easy in the context of the current state to see just a massive gap between where it is and where we want it to be. And that gap is just the source of um, depletion. Right, but we just get, we, and that leads to the apathy and the lack of connection, the lack of participation that we're trying to grapple with at, at participatory Melbourne together. And so, um, the way that I've uh, sort of managed that, there's two things. I guess two things I want to say. One is, um, I'm very informed and driven by the way that Joanna Macy frames active hope. And so, active hope is a really simple idea, but basically, it's sort of three steps that we take on a daily basis. One is that we view the world exactly as it is. We don't shy away from the truth. We don't try and sugarcoat it. We don't try and make it easy. We stare the truth in the face. Then we think about what is our vision for how it could be and how it should, tr- should transform. And then we take steps from where we are in our lives towards our vision. And that sounds unbelievably simplistic, but actually supremely powerful if we think of where we are in the world as being valuable. So in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, with our sphere of influence, how do we take steps towards our vision in an active sense? And in that sense, hope is an expression of our actions. It's not an ideology that we hold or a kind of naive expression of the world. It's it's what we can do. It's an active hope. And I feel like that is something that I come back to often when the work is difficult, and, and it often is. In fact, it almost always is. Um, that's, that's really important. And the other thing that I, that I, um, use as a little bit of a a go-to phrase is just this idea of pragmatic idealism. And that is this idea that is, it is a hundred percent necessary to have that future vision. And we have it at Regen Melbourne. We have a beautiful articulation of what a regenerative Melbourne is and could be for us. Um, and that's the idealism. That's what drives us towards, towards action. And then we have to reconcile that with the real world through our pragmatism. And that's a that's a that's basically how do we take steps in the world? How do we sit in meetings with people? How do we um, how do we do that? And that's not a it's not a static tension. To your point, right? Sometimes the moment calls for extreme idealism, and we have to push that agenda really hard. And sometimes it's the it's the inverse. And as kind of actors or systems leaders or however you want to describe it, um, this evolution of leadership I think has to grapple with that tension in a much more mature way than we've been able to. I think that's a huge part of the work. Uh, the Ethics Centre has some wonderful framing around that, I, and um, um, where they talk about the imperative that each of us continues to cultivate our awareness, our courage, our imagination, our influence um, and our wisdom. And I, what I really love about that articulation is it implies and it suggests that we must be resilient and focused on this continual cultivation of our capacity to exercise leadership. Do you know what I mean? To contribute to leadership. Just tell me, how do you support yourself in your leadership journey? 
What's other sorts of things that you do? Because all of us have moments where it doesn't feel so easy or we feel burnt out or we feel disappointed or we haven't got where we wanted to get to. What? Tell me how you frame that in your own life and what are some of the things that you do that allow you to maintain the North Star to keep moving towards it? So I feel like there's like the serious answer to that question and then there's the real answer to that question. So the well, serious Tell me both. Tell me both. The serious answer to that question, Liz, is there are some obvious things that we should do, all of us, when we're doing this sort of um, work, which I think is things like, you know, mindfulness or meditation practice. It's physical exercise is a really big one for me um, and making sure that happens. Um, there's, uh, you know, a big one for me is time in nature. So, you know, in the water is a big part of my, you know, being in the water. It's funny, my my family sometimes look at me and my kids will say, oh, Kai needs a swim, otherwise it's going to get grumpy, right? <laughs> and it's like, there's a, there's a genuine understanding in my family that like, that's a part of my mental health. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of, I guess, the more uh, sort of practical side or the practice side. Um, and I don't subscribe to this idea that there's, you know, that, that, has, that has to be necessarily... Um, ritualistic. So I know for some people, daily journaling or daily meditation practice as a kind of ritual is really important. It's it's much more fluid for me. Um, it sort of depends on on the moment. And then the other part of that, I think, is just the people. So I'm surrounded by unbelievable. I mentioned the team at Regen, unbelievable crew of human beings who we can be very open and vulnerable and, and connected with. Um, it's not just about the work. It's, of course, about our own regeneration. It's not just the regeneration of the place. And that's a big principle in, in how we work together. The, the real answer, the fun answer, um, is that I love, I love the outlet of sport. So this is going to sound silly, but I don't think it is. At least this is how I've conceptualized it. The complexity of the world that we're moving in and the ambition of this, the scale of ambition for something like Reggio Melbourne is so big and there is no blueprint. There is no, there are no rules for how one, you know, how you govern this type of work, how you take one foot in front of the other. We're constantly just trying to experiment our way to more systemic outcomes but if you go to the footy liz if you go to the footy <laughs> there are very distinct <laughs> there are two teams there are almost always one winner um there's umpires that arbitrate it's done and dusted in three hours it is the most succinct expression of kind of human endeavor and there's something about that simplicity that calms me um so i often i often go to the football with my kids and um, and other sport as well. But there's something about that outlet, I think, that is not only about community and connectors with others who are experiencing it um, as well and, and a connection to, to to human beings, but there's also something just in me that just likes the simplicity of it um, when in our daily lives it is complex. I think it's a perfect... I love that tension, though, between... I love that tension between the sort of ephemeral and hope and the and the the nature of someone wins at the footy and what you've got to do to get there. There's something kind yeah. that sits in the middle of that that makes me think we're going to make things happen. Which I love yeah. that because so often these conversations can be too pie in the sky or too grounded, but it definitely is the space in between. Yeah. Uh, in finishing, Kai. Sorry, God. Yeah. I just wanted to say one more thing on the on the yeah. on the holding of this. Um, because yeah. it just came to me now, and I feel like it's such a fundamental part of the way we the way we move in the world at Regen Melbourne. Uh, and that's that we are we are brutally um ambitious when it comes to the systems that we're working with like and how they need to transform but we are empathic with people and often i think those two things are mixed together right so we are um, antagonistic and aggressive towards individuals who hold certain positions in the current system rather than the system itself because of course all of us are born of the system that we're in we all hold positions based on the system as it is and so we just want to hold that tension between that we can be empathic with people who are a product of the system that we're in and also be really, really brutal on the system itself. And that's but something I, that look at it. But I think the other word to add to that is pragmatic. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because the the thing is that pragmatic implies trade-offs, decisions, traction, yep. moving forward. Not and, and there's something in the three of those things in combination that I actually think is what we have to build into these things. So yep. can, can, I right. same teaching? can I just say before um, before we do finish, Kai, because everybody's going to be sick to death of listening to all of this by now because we've gone on for too long, but I could speak to you for literally all day. Um, can I also just acknowledge too that it's the coming together of people from different perspectives and I'd really like to acknowledge Steve Graham, 
uh, who's supporting the work of participatory Melbourne and what he's bringing, um, his long-term passion for the importance of this work and just how, as you've said, it's all different people from all different vantages coming together with a shared view of what the greater good is, of what we can, what we can do to build a thriving community and to really more deeply understand our collective responsibilities to each other. In finishing, Kai, if I could have two or three words about that reflect where you are now and what needs to happen to get to where you want to get to, what message would you like to leave with the people who are listening to this? How would you like them to contribute to what I think is a really profound and important vision, not just for Regen Melbourne and the amazing work you're doing there, but actually for the future of Australia? So I think that the idea of a, um, you know, a thriving a city within planetary boundaries is clearly transferable, right? Like it's transferable to communities that are in a, in a regional or a rural environment. It's transferable to other cities. And we're working with a network of places already organizing in similar ways. So if people are interested, where you know, please reach out about that. Um, the idea of a thriving city in Melbourne um, within planetary boundaries is something that we all have to contribute to in, in the, exactly the way you just described the wonderful work that Steve does. Um, it's, it's the same, right? So if you're an organization that's large, if you're a small organization, if you're a social enterprise, if you're a community group, you're all invited into the region Melbourne, um, space, and we need everybody to be engaged in order to make the kind of radical transformation that we, uh, that we, that we are looking for. And the last, so please join region Melbourne. That would be wonderful. And the third thing I'd say is at more at the kind of philosophical level is find the joy, find the joy in this work, um, which can often be unbelievably difficult and challenging, particularly given the rolling nature of the crises that are here and are coming. And so I, we talk a lot about, as this, I think we mentioned before, the regeneration of ourselves and this place and the regeneration of ourselves requires a connection to each other and to the joy that comes from that connection. And so let's not sideline joy and play while we stare the current, um, you know, current situation in the face. We can do both. We have to be able to do both. Otherwise, we really don't stand a chance to navigate this in a, in a meaningful way as a collective. So, yeah, reach out if you want to um, uh, talk about Regen and, and the idea of Regen places in other parts of Australia. Definitely join us if you're a part of the, you know, the Greater Melbourne community. We'd love to have you involved in, in Regen Melbourne and try and keep funding the joy, Liz. Can I say, Kai, I, I find myself in rooms with you talking about joy. All I do is smile. Uh, <laughs> I think you're a, you're a wonderful purveyor of joy and optimism and hope and can I just express how grateful I am for your time this morning how much I commend you for the work you and your team in Region Melbourne and how delighted and with you know with such hope and ambition the foundation looks forward to working with you in participatory Melbourne so thanks very much thanks so much for having me Liz and thanks for all your support it's such a such a joy to be playing together <laughs>